0: The Choose Love Movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at ChooseLoveMovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Hey, everyone. It is Scarlett Lewis. I am the founder of the Choose Love Movement and also. Do This Choose Love podcast. I really appreciate everybody that's listening. I have an incredible, incredible guest that I met actually at a leadership course that I recently took at Nichols University, and his name is Dr. Peter Van Amberg. I'm gonna read his bio because it is so incredible. I want you all to have just a little bit of his history. It's so amazing. And then we will get into our discussion. But Dr. Peter Van Amberg is a leader in business innovation and organizational development. Pete received a doctor of education and organizational leadership from Argosy University in 2003. In 2012, he retired from the U.S. Army as a colonel after 28 years of demanding leadership roles from company team through brigade command in long-range surveillance, special forces, and intelligence units. He holds master's degrees from Kennesaw State University and the U.S. Army War College, and is a graduate of a host of military schools, including Special Forces, Ranger, Jump Master, Halo, and the Counterintelligence Special Agents course. He has the benefit of possessing unique technical competencies, as well as experience leading large organizations and highly skilled multinational teams in combat operations, humanitarian missions and other activities in Germany, England, France, Denmark, Italy, Panama, Japan, Georgia, Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, Oman and Uganda. Proven ability to successfully analyze critical business functions, culture, identify deficiencies and weaknesses, and formulate assessments into strategic plans and policies that produce organizational excellence. In addition to his military service, he has three years of law enforcement and is a retired federal agent, 10 years in business school, and over 14 years of teaching experience at undergraduate through doctoral level. He's authored a book, numerous articles, and holds two US patents. Dr. Van Amberg is a highly experienced operations executive who has demonstrated the ability to lead diverse teams in extreme, competitive, complex, and stressful environments. He values integrity, loyalty, and service and action. His work work bridges the strategic to the tactical, and his teaching is as valuable for senior executives as to their first-line supervisors. He has amassed strong technical and business qualifications with an impressive track record of more than 30 years of success in challenging leadership positions, strategic planning, business unit development, teaching transformation, and project management. He is a master at strategic planning, deciphering culture, and developing action plans that deliver results. He is also a lifelong learner who lives his favorite mantra. If you are not getting better, you must be getting worse. His passion is passing on the hard learned is his passion is passing on the hard learned lessons from the battlefield, boardroom, classroom, and the street to the next generation of global leaders. That's who you're addressing today. Dr. Van Amberg, thank you so much for joining the Choose Love podcast.
1: Thanks, Scarlett. I I don't know who you were actually talking about just now.
0: I have the same feeling when people read my bio. I get kind of a little hot under the collar.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
0: But uh, all of that, I wanted our listeners to hear because you are incredibly accomplished. I went through just a, a small bit of your course at Nichols College, and I was so impressed. It helped me so much. And while I was listening to you, I thought, wow, this really impacts leadership at every level and in every aspect of life, uh, including obviously teachers and parents and anyone out there that models for anyone uh, can definitely benefit from your experience. I've read your book, One mission, leadership lessons for a lifetime to Africa, strategies for effective teamwork in multicultural, multinational, multi-agency, and multi-jurisdictional undertakings. I think that that's kind of uh, what our teachers are feeling as well, uh, you know, in their leadership role today and the changing environment in schools. And so, you know, listen up because Dr. Van Amberg has so much wisdom to give and then incredible stories to kind of illustrate the concepts. So uh thanks for being here.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Scarlett. It's uh, you know, it's an honor to be able to address some of the people that um, that you have listening here. You know, I love your I love your your mission and uh, and I think it's so important. Matter of fact. I've learned so much from you as well. I share it with whenever I get in front of parents and and other people here that have uh that have children that need to hear your message. I'm constantly um you know uh uh, constantly putting that forward right here. So thanks again for having me here today as well. I, you know, I'm an educator as well. I know you've got lots of educators listening. I've been teaching for a number of times, and I always looked at the classroom as a leadership opportunity. And um, and so you know, I hope that uh through some of the discourse we have here today, maybe a few people will pick up some things that will resonate with them and and um and give them some opportunities here to think about the way that they they lead their their classrooms the way they lead their families the way they lead their organizations a little bit differently.
0: Excellent, excellent, thank you. So I know that you started off the class at Nichols with the definition of leadership and then an amazing story about jumping out of an airplane. Um, do do you think that that's a good way to start off today?
1: Sure, I, I mean I think there's a great richness and look at the um, the etymology of word you know of words and specifically the word. Leader comes from the old Frisian word leda or "laden," and it means the first person to step off in the dance. and I, And I just love that uh, that frame or that picture that comes from that because we all know that once one person steps off, other people follow. and uh, And so, you know, when you kind of think about leadership from that perspective, you know, and that leader role, it becomes so important to recognize that someone always has to be the first person to step off. And it's scary sometimes to step off. To be that first person, but there's someone always needs to be that one and um and as you mentioned you know i have a I have a story that i that I like to share with people regarding stepping off because it's like the ultimate stepping off experience right so i uh, back in nineteen eighty five I was a young private first class. And I was uh, I was in a long range surveillance unit, a brand new unit in the army, and I happened to be assigned to a Halo team, which is a high altitude, low opening parachute team. So our method of insertion was to jump out really high, open low, and try to clandestinely get into you know the uh, the enemy's um, uh, territory in the back. So, anyways, I was sent to Halo School as a private first class, and uh, and it's really interesting because at the time. I was 18 years old, I was a private first class, I, I believe I was the youngest and the and the lowest ranking person at the time to ever go through Halo school. So when I showed up at Halo school at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, I took a lot of ribbing from, you know, from all kinds of the other participants there they, you know, they was full of uh, you know, Delta Force operators and Navy SEALs and Army Special Forces and Rangers and uh, Air Force Special Ops people and everything else. A lot of things that I aspired to be that, you know, fortunately later on, I actually got to got a chance to test out and, and participate in. But at the time, I was just this young punk in, in Halo school that uh, that all these senior people were saying, Hey, you know what? I've been waiting my whole military career to go to HALO school and they send this young punk to HALO school. So, anyways, we go through our ground training and um and it's the way the army does uh HALO school versus if any civilian jumpers out there. Um, you know, they we go from static line jumping, which is where you your parachute opens automatically. You know, usually around 1500, 2,000 feet, you exit the aircraft. Your, your parachute opens automatically. It's hooked to a static line that opens a deployment bag, and your parachute opens, and uh, and it's low level. And uh, and and hey, in civilian parachuting, what ends up happening when you start doing free fall is you start doing you start doing delays. You, so you do a three to five second delay and a three, five second delay between the time you exit the aircraft and open your parachute. And you get these, uh, you know, you get farther and farther and more time in free fall from the time you exit to the time you open the army doesn't do it that way. We go from static line parachuting to, uh, to do some ground training, wind tunnel training. And then we go to 10,000 feet for our first parachute jump. And, um, and our first parachute jump, you know, it's, it's pretty unnerving because nobody's done a free fall jump before. That's why we're all in halo school. And, um, and you, you know, you have all these fears, right? All these fears about, uh, Am I going to be able to get stable? Am I going to be able to pull on time? Am I going to, you know, all the things that go through your mind. Is my parachute going to open? I mean, all these types of things. So we get up to 10,000 feet on the first jump. And of course... You know the uh, the instructors decide who's going to go out first, and uh, and they ended up choosing me, right? The the lowest ranking, least experienced, youngest jumper there on the uh, on the aircraft, and and it's kind of interesting, right? Because uh, you know the question is always, well, why would they choose you? And I've heard all kinds of responses like, well, you know, you're the most expendable. Okay, I get that one and stuff here as well, right? But um, but what the what the uh, instructors knew is that. Is that by sending this young punk off the aircraft first, uh, you know, it's gonna it's gonna influence everybody else on the aircraft. Again, that's that that first step, you know, who's gonna take the first step? Because all the egos from the the senior people that are in the aircraft, you know, are all gonna go off if the young punk goes off the uh the aircraft first. And uh and the Halo instructors knew that because they've had people freeze before and so forth. So they want to make sure that. You know, that whoever went off is uh is gonna influence everybody else along the way. So I got to be the first one to jump off and fortunately survived it and have many jumps after that. And I got I, to be. That's right, exactly. And my influence compelled everybody else in the aircraft because they're like, if that guy can do it, then I can do it and stuff as well. Now I pressure's
0: doubt they, on. <laughs> that's right.
1: I I doubt they, you know, knew that they were using self-efficacy theory, you know, Bandura's vicarious modeling, but that's exactly what they were doing out there, and uh and, and again, that, that first step is the, is an important kind of component. And for those that are in leadership, you know, you know that that first step is tough sometimes, right? The first step jumping off the aircraft, but also, you, know, just the frame of reference you have taking that first step. And if you can envision just for a moment the back of an aircraft, the ramp of an aircraft, um, you know, when you're on the ramp, you know, you see everything, you know, you, you get to feel the wind coming in, you get to see the jump master who's typically kneeling down trying to do a spot, you can look out and see the horizon, you can see the clouds, you might even be able to see the markings on the drop zone, depending on how far you, you know, how far up you are. But the, the, the point of that is, is that the people that are behind you, they don't see that. I mean, all they see really is the next couple of steps in front of them, because the aircraft is dark it's cramped and uh, and you got a lot of people that are that are pushing to get off the aircraft and stuff from the back and so they don't see what you see as a leader and i think that's a really important frame of reference to remember that you know that as a leader you see things a little different than other people right here and they'll go with you if you take the step and you build trust with them they'll you know they'll follow along with you as well but, um, but you can't assume that they can see everything that you can see along the way. So it's just always an important kind of frame to re- reference to remember.
0: That's that is an incredible story. I can just picture you as an 18 year old looking out of the open door to the ground where you're going to be jumping and uh, as an 18 year old wondering, gosh, I didn't think I was going to be first. <laughs>
1: No, not at all.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: always has to take the step. I mean, that's the way it goes, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. stepping off, stepping off is so incredible, and uh, and I know that your leadership philosophy is a leader's role is to help make other people successful. That is your personal philosophy, and I'm going to read just. A little um, paragraph from, it's towards the end of your book, but uh, I loved this. Your role, referencing my favorite approach to leadership as a transformational leader, is to instill a sense of purpose, direction, and belief that a new way is possible and seek to implement changes that will improve the organization. Through its membership. And then a little bit earlier, you said continuous improvement keeps you evolving and searching for opportunities to enhance your position instead of falling for the ease and comfort that breeds complacency. It also provides an environment that not only continuously strives for greater performance, but also attracts high performers. There's just so much great stuff in this book. Um, if you could see my book, it is underlined and pages turned down throughout. So I encourage everybody to uh, to, to read this incredible book on leadership. Um, but you talk about a lot, um, trans transformational leadership. And can you talk a little bit about that with the audience?
1: Absolutely. And, um, and thanks for, um, again, for highlighting a few things and I'm, and I'm, um, and I'm humbled that you would even highlighted anything in that particular book right there, but, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Transformational leadership is, you know, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different theoretical approaches to leadership. And, um, and I, you know, I've been privy to a lot of them here. I mean, I, I, you know, as you mentioned, I have a doctorate in organizational leadership, and you know, what I end up finding is that uh, that more often than not, the transformational leadership approach is really the the best one for for organizations and for growing the right kind of people, and and uh, and it really fits my. My uh, my leadership philosophy, which you outlined and stuff as well, which is that you know a leader's job is to make other people successful. I mean that's ultimately what we're trying to do. And then when you couple that with the other thing you mentioned, which is that if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. I mean those two kind of frames of reference right there uh, kind of encapsulate the transformational leadership mindset. So transformational leadership for for those who have, haven't heard that term before um, is uh, was coined by a guy named Bernard Bass. In the 1980s, I don't remember exactly what the date was where he really kind of got behind it and started writing about it, and it's gained a lot of uh, notoriety since then. I don't know there's been a lot of research on it, but you know what it what it means is if you think about the word transformational. Trans means move, so what you're talking about is moving from one form to another through the process of influence, which is leadership, and um, and that is a uh, that's an important kind of frame. To think about from a transformational perspective, and what you're really talking about from moving from one form to another isn't moving your organization from one form to another. It's moving the people from one form to another. And so, it I, I kind of find the transformational leadership approach is the is is very often the best approach most organizations need to take. So, some of the things about transformational leadership is that it's uh, it it truly changes and transforms individuals in the organization. And it does it through, um, you know, through specifically through role modeling type of behavior. But the, uh, the leaders are the change agents. And some of the things that they do is they raise the level of motivation and morality in the organization by establishing clear vision, empowering followers, uh, and inspiring trust and giving meaning to organizational life. So it's a really kind of encompassing framework. And there's there's four eyes that are part of transformational leadership. Um, the first one is idealized influence, which is role modeling behavior. So again. The, you know, the 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 greatest influence you have as a leader is your own model, and that is a big hallmark of transformational leadership is that role modeling behavior. You know, you never ask someone to do something that you're unwilling or incapable of doing yourself. You do it first. You take the first step out there. That's such an important component. Another one is um, inspirational motivation, which is tying into, you know, into uh Inspiring vision, visionary type of activities right here again to get the big picture so that people understand the the direction. You know, there's not a there's not a um, a standard operating procedure for everything that happens in our organization. So a vision becomes an important guide. And transformational leaders will to, you know will will strive to build a vision that will help guide people along in those situations that there is uncertainty or there's uh, there's not a clear path for them to go off of. So that helps get people along the way. Uh, The other part of transformational leadership, the the third eye is individualized consideration, which is adjusting your leadership approach for the needs of your people. So you don't go in and say, well, this is my leadership style. You all adjust to me. You learn about your people and you learn about what their needs are. And subsequently you adjust your approach specifically so that uh, you set the conditions for them to be successful. And then the last thing is intellectual stimulation, which is the why, which is always an important kind of component and stuff here as well. So Again, you have you have um I idealized influence, which is role modeling, you have inspirational motivation, which is the vision, you have individualized consideration, which is you know, which is the people portion of adjusting your leadership approach and the intellectual stimulation, which is the why. Those are those four eyes really guide uh you know the, the transformational leader. And um and I say that uh that I you know as I consult with different organizations here you know and, and a lot of different types of organizations too everything from law enforcement to healthcare to defense to um you know to uh manufacturing i'll oftentimes i'll um i'll listen to the the leaders and they'll say you know we we have this leadership approach here that we want to use and it's a, you know this is the way we want to go here and i'll listen to that and then i'll do a cultural assessment of organization right here and look at their needs and some of the things that are going on and oftentimes it's not that what they need is a transformational leadership approach. They're looking to innovate. They're looking to, you know, build role modeling leaders and so forth. And they don't have the right framework to do that. So I often come back to transformational leadership. Now, because of the audience that you have right here, I, I want to make, I, I want to talk about servant leadership here for just a minute because that, you know, that is obviously a uh, a term that that uh, that many. Uh, people, especially in the education profession, healthcare profession, other professions, right here, really gravitate to that servant leadership approach. And I and I oftentimes hear that when I'm dealing with different clients. And um, and 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 there's nothing wrong with servant leadership. I mean, I'm a I'm an advocate for servant leadership as well. And I think you can be a servant leader and be transformational as well. But you can't necessarily be just. You can't be a servant leader. You can be a transformational leader, I guess, and be a servant leader as well. You can't necessarily be a servant leader and be transformational. And so let me explain that for just a moment. Um, you know, servant leadership, very similar transformational leadership, has that that, you know, um setting the conditions for people to, to be their best on there. The the challenge that servant leadership sometimes has is that is that servant leaders oftentimes, you know, if they're not if they don't understand some of the ways to build that uh, condition setting for excellence, uh, what ends up being is is uh, well, what can I do to make uh, my my employees or the uh, or my students or others, you know, like me better? And so it can be it can really gravitate towards likership instead of leadership, and that's one of the dangers of it. So when you think about transformational leaders, you know what you think about is role modeling, visionary. Uh, adjusting your approach and and those types of things, sometimes servant leaders do some of those things. Oftentimes the role modeling piece is left off of servant leadership, as well as the vision, and it just becomes down to, well, how well can I take care of my people? And that can manifest in a lot of different ways. It can manifest a lot of great ways But it can also turn into every day's a birthday party kind of thing right here, meaning that you know if I if I if I get people to like me, you know that means that I'm being a good servant leader right here. You know, giving them this, giving them that, giving them a lot of latitude. That's not always what people need to be their best. And so the the role modeling influence and the and the transformational aspects of uh, transformational leadership oftentimes are are a better frame for many people going forward. And it's the one I've used. I use it in the classroom, I use it in, you know, with organizations out here and stuff as well, and um, and I just find that oftentimes would be a better fit, and when you think about educational leadership, uh, you know, that some of the things that go on, and from an educational standpoint, specifically in the in the era that we're in right now is that, you know, we, we need to be looking towards bringing impactful change on people. It's not just about setting, you know, the status quo and building, you know, um, happy, happy classrooms and things like that. It's, it's, you know, it's really being, you know, overcoming and the some of the challenges and innovating ways to deliver meaning meaningful classroom experiences. And I think that becomes a different frame of reference instead of uh, just, well i'm serving my people and stuff around here now you're really trying to build the conditions for them to not only be you know um uh, do their best in the classroom but do their best beyond the classroom and stuff as well so it you know if you if you think about that frame it also can not just transform individuals within their classroom but also transform the school and the community at large you know through those transformational efforts here and um and of course during diversity you know strong leadership is critical uh you know to overcome uh you know for resilience and adaptation and recovery and again that you know that transformational aspects that changes and transforms individuals rages motivation and morality and that role modeling behavior of always being the first person to step off is is such an important component of uh, of those elements. So, I know you asked a very short question and you got a very long answer. So, I'm going to go ahead and um and uh and give it back to you right here for some follow up.
0: Well, I love I love that. I'm so glad you brought in servant leadership and as you were talking, I was not only thinking about the education system, but I was also thinking about parents and how I see some of that servant leadership mentality seeping into parents as well as they try to deal with kids who literally really need direction, but parents are uh, seemingly reacting out of fear for the conditions that their kids are bringing forward. And instead of really kind of bringing in more of the transformational leadership and modeling and guiding, they are more friend, friend. what did you call it? Friend leadership?
1: Likership.
0: Likership, oh my gosh, right, likership. And I know I can fall into that as well. I think that that's really interesting. Um, Can you just touch on that for parents?
1: Yeah, and so you know, I mean, influence takes a lot of different forms, obviously. And as a parent, you know, I mean, I think most parents would probably aspire to, you know, that leadership philosophy that I that I do, which is we want to set the conditions for other people to be successful and want our children to be more successful than we are, right? And that's so. I think that's a that's a good frame of reference to, again to uh, to think about you know leading your children here and um and you know and that and that can be tough right i mean it's it's sometimes it's easy i have children as well i mean they're grown now but um uh but it's easy sometimes just to fall into the well i want to you know i just want to make them happy right and making them happy isn't always the right thing to do you know giving them boundaries and guardrails and things like that does not make it easy when the children are bumping up against the guardrails. But the guardrails are there to help them go off a cliff. And if you don't, you know, if you don't put them up, and you don't guide them along, you know, again, from that inspiring kind of, uh, you know, um, big picture perspective right here, then, uh, then a lot of times, you know, you, you have to suffer the consequences of, you know, of trying to just be their friend along the way. And it's, it's easy to fall victim of, of being, you know, because it's hard, right? It's hard to discipline people that you love. It's hard to keep them on track right here. Sometimes it's hard to let go and let go of some of the, um, the you know, the, uh, the controls that you have on your kids here that might be, you know, causing them to have uh, some issues and stuff as well. I mean, before this podcast started today, you and I were talking just briefly for a moment and you know, and it's tough when you have uh, children that are going through some type of crisis. But you also have to rec- recognize that within that crisis, sometimes the reason they're in the crisis is because of imposed controls that are on them. And you've got to release some of that, and allow them to make choices themselves, and uh, and that's scary as a parent stuff as well. I mean, sometimes you just have to release it to God and and let and let you know let things take their course because the the uh, the you know the the children or your kids are making choices because you're and the reason they're making negative choices at least in your mind is because um because you're imposing other things on them that are uh that are you know that are causing them to go in different directions so I mean it's a very complicated you know um very complicated uh, environment with raising children and stuff here and uh and the easy route, isn't always the best route. So, um, so, you know, being a, a good leader sometimes is, you know, is releasing control, being a good leader is, is, you know, is establishing good guardrails and allowing your children to make choices within a certain framework of, you know, of, um, uh, of those left and right limits, I guess is the best way to put it.
0: Yeah. So important. I mean, one of the things that the choose love movement does in our programming in schools is introduces this concept that, uh, expect adversity, (laughs) expect pain, because that's a human condition. So don't, don't necessarily fear it, Uh, resist, avoid, or, you know, that could lead to numbing, but uh, have the courage to face adversity because it's there for a reason. It's there to help you learn, grow, it will strengthen you, and it will get you ready for the next thing coming along the pike. I mean, as adults, we know that, and we, I think that you know in our minds we want to create this environment for our kids where there's no pain and that just absolutely is an impossibility and in fact if you think about it the most interesting people the strongest people that I know are people that have gone through tremendous adversity maybe even tragedy and they have lived through it to the other side they've taken what they've learned through their experiences, both good and bad, and they're sharing it with the world. I mean, similar to to you, um, that wisdom. And I believe that that's why we're here. But I also believe that you have to give kids the expectation that, yeah, this isn't all you know sunshine and rainbows. It is there's some difficulty that you're going to encounter, and you need to have some skills and tools and guidelines in order to get through it.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, every day is not a birthday party, unfortunately, you know, and, uh, and you do, you do learn so much from the setbacks that you have in life as, as traumatic as they may be. I mean, back when I was a, when I was a young person before I even got in the military, you know, I was, uh, I grew up on single parent household. Um, my mother left when I was, uh, when I was very young and, uh, and I, I, you know, and I had to live through that, and also, you know, I got in a motorcycle accident, which uh, which was a debilitating accident. I thought I was going to lose a, uh, a, you know, some my foot and so forth on here, and and you know, I had it in my mind that I just wanted to go in the military. It came from, you know, my father was an old special forces guy and stuff as well, and uh, but you know, I have to say that, that coming back from some of those some of those setbacks you know made me the kind of person I was and i and you know even the the all the pain and everything else i went through recovering from that motorcycle accident um you know i i i have to give it back that you know the the good lord had put that as painful as it was in my life had put that in my life for a reason and the reason was it gave me the grit necessary to be able to go through all those difficult training uh, elements and and combat and all the other things and stuff that happened in life so um yeah those you know every day is not a birthday party for sure. And, uh, and we set our children up for, you know, for failure when we don't allow them to fail every once in a while and, uh, and have to deal with the, you know, the, the setbacks from that stuff. It's, 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 you know, it's, again, leading people isn't always easy, right? They can be hard to make those kind of choices, but those choices you know, allowing someone to to fail a little bit right here can really set the condition for them to succeed later on. Whereas if you just never allow them to fail, then when they have a setback, they're just not prepared for it.
0: Uh, that's that's so true. And then I know in your rearview mirror of life now, you look back at the adversities that you faced and you're grateful for the lessons that you learned. Like I will say, I'm not grateful that my son was murdered, but I certainly am grateful for what I've learned and the people that I've met, including you. I mean, so much growth has happened because of that. And I, and I am grateful for that. Um, so you also talk about, and leadership is all about creating positive change. And so that word change right now, because we've gone through so much change in our world, and everyone is facing that. We know that uh, we know that something has to change, uh, and I'm talking about in education uh, and and basically in our in our homes and in our society to help our children. But just that concept of change is sometimes scary to people. It requires us, to get outside of our comfort zone and uh, and, and be, go into our growth zone. So how do we encourage as leaders people to embrace positive change and, and motivate them to do that as well?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a very big question, obviously. It
0: is, it yeah, is absolutely. a
1: huge <laughs> question, right? And uh, and it one is. that I'm constantly question
0: of the day, right? And,
1: right, absolutely. One that I'm constantly, you know, um, uh, uh, asked at, at different organizations, and you know, and and so I'll, I'm just gonna I'll just say a few things and stuff on here. So the first thing about about change especially when you talk about changing if you're changing a you know an education system you're changing a society you're changing an organization what i will tell you that first of all is that you should you know the the change needs to happen one person at a time and the first person is yourself Right, Mm -hmm. so I mean that's the first person that needs to change. And again, going back to transformational leadership, you know, if you want people to change, then you need to be the role model for change yourself. And that becomes an important component of guiding people along because your influence will influence others and stuff through that process. So, uh, so, so you change the organization one person at a time. It starts with you, right? And, And 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 you know what I have found over you know over the years is that. It, it's not that people don't want to change I mean there's this there's this uh this common misunderstanding that you know that there's uh that there's a natural resistance to change there's really not a natural resistance to change that the change resistance comes when people sense that there's going to be some type of loss uh so if it's if there's a gain they're happy to change like if I were to offer you a you know a brand new you know Jeep you know Wrangler uh you know Rubicon Scarlet today, you know, I mean, are you going to accept that change or not? You Absolutely.
0: I mean? yeah. <laughs>
1: if we were going to give one to all of your listeners and stuff out there, I'm sure that, you know, that 99.999% would accept that change without any kind of thing. Now, if you talk about this, something that's going to potentially uh, uh, be perceived as a loss, then people will resist it. And and one of the biggest losses that that people will resist is just the predictability that they have in life. So if you're trying to institute something that, that is going to um, cause some change in their normal pattern of behavior or pattern of life, it, it oftentimes it meets resistance. And why does that? And it does that because generally humans want to control, you know, they want the perception of control in their environment, right? So if you remove predictability, you remove the perception of control, and subsequently, now you end up with a stress response. And that stress response can manifest in you know a lot of different ways. But one way is uh, is resistance, and uh, and that can be a real tough thing. So when people get set in their ways, um, it's predictable. And with that predictability, they feel like they can control outcomes. When you take the predictability out, you remove the the uh, the perception of control. You get a potential stress response. That stress response is is uh, can manifest in resistance. So, you know, so setting the conditions for people to uh be less resistant to change often, you know, is is I hate to say it's simple, but it it from a um uh from a uh, uh you know, just from a uh, perspective of the control elements, if you always think of the control elements, then sometimes mitigating resistance can be very simple, meaning that if you uh if you involve somebody in in the change initiative uh you know then they now have a they have a sense that they can control the outcome so that mitigates some of the resistance to change um you there's a lot of different tools and stuff here to do that but the bottom line is is that the more you empower people uh along a um, a change initiative the more likely it is that you're going to remove resistance from change because they're going to feel like they have a say in it they're going to feel like they have a uh, you know, a um, uh, some influence in the outcome, and that gives them predictability. And with predictability, it lessens their resistance to change. And again, through vicarious modeling, like I was talking about, in, uh you know, in the halo jumping, you know, illustration and stuff earlier, you know, your role modeling also helps people feel empowered to be able to change themselves. So seeing your change will empower other people to change and stuff. Uh, uh, change as well on there. So it's a very complex you know, depending on the organization or society or whatever, but, uh, you know, ultimately it's, it's not as, it's not as, um, as hard to get your, you know, your hands around it as you would think. It always starts with you. You have to change first, then you, through your role modeling, you change others. And, and remembering that, you know, if you impose things on people then you're uh, you're going to f- oftentimes find some resistance if you empower people to be part of the solution, be part of the change, then you've given them some influence over the outcomes and the perception of control that comes with that. So I mean that's the big thing is the control element right here. And I think most uh, you know most people can probably think of a time when, you know, some something was imposed on them and they resisted it versus they were able to make a choice. And within that choice, um, you know, they found some solace and and making a change themselves along those ways.
0: That's profound. What you just said. I wish that we could take that, copy it, and say it again. Because if you're listening to this, rewind and listen to that segment right there again. Because that is, I mean, that's like uh, the the human condition is that that resistance that I see, you know, for the past 10 years to positive change, to bringing in essential life skills into the classroom that would not only benefit the kids but also the educators and parents and society and there's research behind it. And you've got this this inherent resistance in a small faction. And that's been the question of the day. It's like how to overcome that resistance and uh and sometimes uh, that's exactly the case you've got a leader that's saying this is what we're going to do and they're not doing it themselves and so that's just it's so interesting thank you that was just amazing that yes, was
1: Charlotte. Scarlett, I just want to uh, capitalize on what you just said right there as well. You know that the term status quo, it just, you know, in Latin it means existing state. And when people get stuck in the existing state, it's it's comfortable for them, right? Uh, it gives them predictability. And and with predictability, gives them a perception of control. So when you interrupt the existing state, when you interrupt the status quo, that's when you have an opportunity to, you know, to actually have those forces that are resisting change be overcome by the forces of change and get you in a different, uh, different frame to think about things. And, and some of that stuff also comes from, you know, using, using, uh, what they call rethinking terms and stuff here as well. Like, um, Uh, You know, when, if you're talking to someone about change and you ask them, well, why do you think that way? And, uh, and, you know, the why sometimes push people into a corner. It actually creates a defensive response and hardens their position. Whereas if you ask them something different, like, well, how, how would you do it differently? Or how did you come to that decision? Asking those how questions oftentimes are those rethinking questions that get people to re-examine their You know their underlying assumptions or those truths that they're that they're stuck in the static status quo with, and and get them to uh, to move in a different direction. So I think those are very important kind of connections and stuff to make as well.
0: Very very important, and I think that that's part of the power of the Choose Love movement. If I come into a school and I tell my story, that opens hearts, and I think the open heart. The inherent trust in being vulnerable then opens minds, and and in that way we we can affect positive change. We get champions that stand up and step off into doing this, you know, new newer program, and uh, and and that's I found that to be very effective. But establishing trust. Also, I mean, especially in a field and I'm talking about the education field, but really, really so many fields today, uh, especially during COVID, you know, where everybody there's like this mass migration going on now because not everybody has to work a five day work week in a physical office corporations are finding that they save money with people working at home. So I think there's more people working at home than ever before. And you've got people that are switching jobs. And so establishing trust as a leader is so important. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. And and let me just go back to one thing you said before, too, when you talked about sharing your story. You know, uh, there's there's such power. Again, you know, when you share your story, you know what you're basically telling, you know the um, uh, the people that you get a chance to share your story with is you're is you're telling them that I, I am, you know, I've experienced this. I'm role modeling this myself. And again, that goes back to that transformational aspect of things, which is that you know you've got that that, that idealized influence. You're role modeling. You have the inspirational motivation, which is you got this big picture thing and stuff, and that and that unbelievable story. You know that you have to that you have to constantly retell, which is um, which is harrowing to some extent, but on the on the same time it's empowering in many ways, Uh, and uh, and so those two things connected right there, you know, puts you in a great position of influence because now you're not only just telling them what you know what is important, but you're you're also showing them that you're role modeling that kind of behavior and stuff as well. Such an important component, and uh, and when you go into building trust you know, there's a couple of different elements of of trust, which I think are always important. You know, there's, um, you know, the the first step is, is, you know, you have to listen to people, right? You have to listen to them. And then you have to, uh, you know, build empathy with them. There's actually a stair-step process of trust. So it's listening, empathy, rapport, which is sameness, and then you get to trust after that. And so, you know, when you think about it from a stair-step perspective it's like i listening i hear you empathy hey i feel you you know rapport We're similar, sameness, right? And then from there we can build trust. So when you when you're able to articulate a um, you know a, a story like yours right here, you know there's some there's some similarities that people can pick up and stuff on there. There's empathy that can be built along the way. And then as a leader, you know it's really important to listen to people and stuff here as well. It's not imposing your views on them. It's listening to them, finding what you know what connects you together, the similarities, and then building trust from there. And that trust element is such an important component because like i mentioned back in the halo jumping piece you know they oftentimes if you're on the ramp if you're the first person to take the step people don't see what you see but if you build trust with them they'll come with you along the way even if they don't quite get it right i mean if they don't can't, they can't quite picture how it's all going to work out if they trust you then they'll they'll come along the way and trust comes from you know, it's a, it's a, it's a deep seated, um, and ultimately it comes down to the, this, this, uh, this theory called expectancy theory, which is, um, which is about, you know, uh, building expectations and then delivering on them, you know, and if you think about the word integrity, you know, you do what you say you're going to do. Well, the more you do what you say you're going to do, then the more people will expect that when you say you do something, you're actually going to deliver on it. And the more you do that, the more you build trust with people over time, you know? So, it's a really important concept to constantly be you know dealing with integrity along along your path of leadership here because you're every time you say and deliver and say and deliver, you're building you know an expectation of that furthering on and pretty soon you build that trust. And that trust is not just a, a good at a certain point it goes beyond just this transactional, you say you're going to do something, you deliver on it, and pretty soon it becomes the more deeper kind of component of trust, which is that people believe that you will do things in their interest over your own. And that becomes, that's when you really cross the threshold of trust is that, is that when people can expect that if faced with some kind of situation, you'll put their interest ahead of yours, then that becomes that deeper level of trust that really engenders support and, uh, and you know, and builds the kind of you know, trust that that really lives through challenges and adversity and everything else along the way. On the flip side of that, you know, when you develop that trust and you do things in your own self-interest over your other people's, you really create a moral wound for people that sometimes is very difficult to get over. And anybody that's had a relationship that's gone south because someone chose themselves over their partner can can knows exactly what I'm talking about when that, when that takes place. But that trust element is a huge piece of it because as a leader especially as a transformational leader, you're role modeling and, and you're doing all the things that are necessary to set the conditions for people to be successful. But the other part of that is that is that through your efforts, through your role modeling, through your connections that you're making with your people right there, you're building trust. And that trust will be tested really under adverse situations when, you know, when, uh, when people follow you, even when they don't know how it's going to work out. And that that becomes that, that really deeper level and important element of trust.
0: You know, I think about a story in your book. I mean, you're going into Africa and you're going into a place where uh, there is inherent distrust in the military. You guys are coming in, flying over villages in helicopters that previously had uh, had been bombing. And so you had this actual fear that you had to counteract as someone coming in to do a humanitarian mission, which you were doing. This is this is a little bit about uh, including all these incredible leadership tactics. This is one of the stories in this book, One Mission to Africa. And so you had to establish trust, not only with the, uh the the leadership there, also with their military that you worked with and and I can't remember how many countries, but also the indigenous people and their kids. And so can you talk a little bit about how you did that in what is seemingly I mean you you had everything working against you and you came in and you did you did establish that trust. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to and again God's hand was in the book from the start so you know I have to I have to give it up to to God that all this worked out the way it did. Um, but, uh, j- just a little bit of background. So we, we conducted an operation up in Northern, uh, you know, Northwestern Uganda. It's a, it's a, it's, it's an area traumatized by the Lord's resistance army, which had nothing to do with the Lord. Um, you know, a, uh, so the insurgency going up there, you had famine, you had age, you've had, you know, Ebola, you've had all kinds of stuff and stuff that has just devastated the, the, the region. And so we conducted an operation up there with, um, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, and then soldiers from Burundi, Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania, and Uganda, and so just putting all that group together in a uh, you know in a really traumatized area that that just putting that group together is a challenge. But then, um, but then, as you uh, as you mentioned, you know the area was traumatized up there not only from you know all those other elements, but just that heavy handed you know put down of the insurgency, and and anybody in uniform uh, was really seen as a. You know, as an as an enemy to, in many respects and stuff up there. I mean, to be feared. And helicopters were our main source of um, transportation because it was about a 12-hour drive from uh the Kitcombe area back down to Entebbe, where we had another uh logistics and headquarters element set up down there. So we use helicopters a lot, and the people were just scared to death of um of aviation because they'd been, you know, they've been used heavy-handedly and stuffier to put down some of the insurgency that had gone on. So, so getting into that environment right there, you know, we knew, I mean, we were doing some good works. So we, we were doing medical outreach. We were rebuilding schools and medical facilities and we were doing security work and stuff as well. So it was kind of like a mission trip with guns, right? I mean, we were doing all this good stuff, but we had to break through some of the stereotypes of, you know, that people have been growing up with and the fears and stuff that had, um, that had uh, come up with over the years, and and as you mentioned, it, it wasn't just um it wasn't just with the uh, uh you know the people around there. It was with the with the you know the other non government agencies that were working there, the the faith based agencies that were working up there. I mean, everybody had this you know this this uh, this paradigm they were dealing with when it came to the military, and we had to break that. And so not
0: sad that you were with guns because there was some danger to you as well with the insurgents yeah, still going on.
1: It was. I mean it's still going on even though they pushed most of them out over into uh into the Congo, you know, the threat of uh attack and especially against uh you know this multinational uh force that was over there would have been great publicity for the terrorists to take advantage of and stuff from that standpoint. So um but yeah, so so we had to break down some of those barriers out there and uh and it was uh, and it was tough. And so, you know, very early, uh, you know, I tried to I tried to make sure that that you know, being a special forces guy right here, you know, we always have to build bridges with the community, and it's really important to understand that and to uh, and to and to uh, to work, uh, you know, from that perspective right there. That our that our job wasn't just you know, to be good soldiers and stuff on there. Our job, again, was to set the conditions for that region to actually grow and prosper and stuff here along the way. And that meant building bridges with the community. And we did that at all echelons. And we did that through a lot of different forums, one of which was uh, using radio broadcasts. I mean, I had psychological operations teams, which kind of like marketing people, when you, if you think about it from a civilian perspective. And they would go out and find out what messaging is going on, what's resonating. And they found out that in that area that there was a... Um, uh, that while most people didn't have electricity, they did have transistor radios and they listened to AM radio broadcasts at night. And they got me on some of the radio shows and stuff here and we were able to communicate directly to uh, to the community, which was amazing because, we had call-in shows. So people would call us in. They I'd literally be talking to people calling in, asking all these crazy questions, like, are we building another Guantanamo Bay in Uganda and stuff like that? And, you know, and everything. And so we I learned a great deal about that. I learned from the people that they were scared of helicopters and stuff by having that engagement on not just on the radio shows, but obviously in person and stuff as well with some of the different faith-based and non-government organizations up there and other people and stuff as we got out. But the, the whole point of that is, is that you have to be engaged. You know, you have to listen. And, uh, and the more you listen, you know, the more you have the opportunity to feel empathy, right? Just like I mentioned before on that trust building, um, that trust building ladder, you know, it's it's listening, it's, it's, uh, it's empathy. And then it's, uh, hey, we're similar. And so we were constantly communicating with people along those lines, because, you know, many of the people in the task force, we had children, you know, so I mean, that's something that we can share, you know, is raising, is raising children, our faith is something that we can share, even when you have different faiths, faith in general is something that you can find similarities from and stuff, because it builds, you know, morals and, and all different kinds of bonds and stuff along those ways. And, I, I, you know, I, I constantly told people over the years that if you look for differences, you'll find them. If you look for similarities, you'll find them. So we were constantly looking for similarities to build bridges out there. And so, you know, to, I won't belabor the point here, but that, you know, at the, but when we first flew in, I literally saw children running when the helicopters come in. I mean, people would run for the, for the hills and stuff here. They'd run for shelter. By the time we left, and I had brought aviators onto some of the radio talk shows and stuff, so that they could talk directly to the people and say, hey, listen, we're we're not you know armed helicopters. We're flying in you know uh, food and and uh, medicine and you know and and equipment and stuff on here and everything else. And if you come out and wave, we'll wave to you." And and by the time we left, literally kids would come out of their houses and wave to us or waved to the helicopters and stuff as we went. So just in a short period of time, you know, by, you know, being engaged, you know, by listening, by building empathy and rapport, by trying to build trust, you know, we reshaped the way people thought about, about our, our force. And and it was through our good deeds and stuff as well. You know I mean? It wasn't like we were telling people where, Hey, we're good. You need to listen to us. We were showing them that we're good through our actions and through our role modeling out there. And that really was what engendered, you know, the kind of support we got.
0: I, I, that's amazing. And then that was your directive to all of the troops that you were leading was to smile and wave. And I think that, you know, that's so simple. And that's something that we can all do every day. Uh, You have a, a an equation in your book and it says just what you were talking about. So I thought I would just touch sure. on it. Word plus action equals truth.
1: Yeah, It's I mean, so that's,
0: fundamental.
1: It's not rocket science, right? It's just behavioral science. I mean, when you say something and you do something about it, then it becomes a truth to people right there. If you just say it, it's just a words that you know they they don't they don't have that kind of resonation and stuff right there. So the action is what I mean, you know, we all know that adage action speaks louder than words right there. And and certainly the combination of words and action that that starts to change people's um understanding and their behavior out there. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, so amazing. Uh I did um before we close, I did want to touch on. Something that you said in our leadership course, which I think will resonate with our audience today. And that is, you know, as you get in front of a new class as a doctoral professor, and you start the year off, uh, those grad students that you teach will judge you, sum up their judgment in about 13 seconds. (laughs) And uh, and so that's really with any teacher. And in fact, we're actually wired to do that in our brains. We look at each other, we have to sum up the other person, judge to see if we think that they're dangerous. Um, But how can an educator, and maybe how do you use that knowledge to your benefit to elicit trust from your students?
1: Yeah, you know, what you're saying is, uh, is such an interesting kind of um, concept here. And it's been, it's been borne out so many studies here over time. But the, you know, the bottom line is, is that people make it, you know, split judgments based off of their own experiences. So when you talk about teaching, especially at the doctoral level or master's level, people have a lot of time in front of, uh, in front or behind teachers, in front of teachers, whatever way you want to look at it. But they have a lot of time in the classroom. So they have a lot of, things to make judgments off in terms of, uh, you know, whether this is going to be a good class or a bad class and they can make me, they can make immediate snapshots, you know, judgments of that. Um, they basically what happens is through their senses and all the different things they, uh, they're experiencing. It goes in their brain. It goes to a schema, which is, uh, you know, makes sense of uh, of what they've just seen, and they and they can come to some kind of judgment as well, whether or not this can be a good class or a bad class. And what I would tell you is that, you know, generally speaking, I mean, the the more preparation that you do before you get in front of the students, will you know, will bear itself out, right? So all the little things that uh, that go into setting up a classroom before the students arrive, you know, uh, help set the conditions for them to walk in and say, well, this is, or, you know, they won't be saying this out loud, but their brain will be saying, well, this seems organized, uh, the person seems prepared, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, you, if you leave things to chance, sometimes they go good and sometimes they go bad, but if you're very deliberate about the way that you set the conditions for people to walk into so that they feel when they walk into the classroom, that it's organized, that they're going to have a good experience, that the uh, things are set up, that um, you know that the person's not rushing around and everything. I mean, most people know that's from you know doing presentations and otherwise. That you know if it's worth doing, it's worth rehearsing and setting up your environment right there for people to have that experience or the experience you're looking for them to have will usually lead to that experience and also help set those those judgments in a you know in a positive frame instead of walking in there and saying. Well, this is, I can tell this is not gonna go well, right? Because it's not set up, the teacher's late, you know, they—you uh, know—the the classroom hasn't been configured yet. You know, there's, I mean, all the little things and stuff that people pick up on as soon as they walk into a classroom. And what's funny is that there's a great video I lost it a long time ago of children talking about leadership. And I wish I could find it again, but it's all these little kids and they're talking about leadership and they're asking them, you know, what makes a good leader? And these little kids are like, well, you know, a good leader is when, you know, someone says they're going to give you a ball and they give you the ball. And it's like integrity. I mean, they're just nailing it. Right. So they know even at a very young age, what good leadership looks like. And, you know, and we need to give it to them. I mean, that's the bottom line. So, uh, so you need to be very cognitive of, of how you're coming across right there because they're already making judgments. They already know what right looks like in many cases.
0: That's, and that leads us right back to the expectancy theory, correct?
1: Yeah, <laughs> my, my favorite theory of motivation, right? Do you want me to articulate on that one a moment? Please. So uh expectancy theory is a is a is a powerful theory of motivation, but from a leadership perspective, it has some in, amazing implications as well. So expectancy theory is based off of assumption that every act will be followed by an outcome. And your motivation to act will be based on on the value you place on the outcome. So I'll make a quick uh, illustration of this since Mission Impossible is coming out here tomorrow or today or something on here. It's a movie I like to watch. So if I'm sitting at home and I'm like, wow, wow, new Mission Impossible movie, I am motivated to act because I believe that the outcome is going to be entertainment, right? That I like that genre, that I'm motivated to act to be able to pull that off. So I'm, I'm actually motivated to move from the couch. To put a plan in place right here to uh to you know to go out to the movie theater and I, my daughters are grown now but I still have two dogs so maybe I need a dog sitter I don't know I probably don't but you know I have to hire a dog sitter I have to plan the event I have a significant other so I'm going to you know take her out to dinner and stuff here and then I'm going to go to the movie so. You know what ends up happening is you you know you spend $50 for a babysitter and you know $50 for dinner and your two tickets and popcorn $50 so you're sitting in Mission Impossible for $150 and here's the kicker on expectancy theory if Mission Impossible is good I can't guarantee I'm going to be satisfied because the instrumentality that took me there—the fifty dollars for the dogs, the meal might have not gone well. Um, you know, the fifty dollars I spent for the tickets, I might not be sitting in the right place. So if 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 it's, uh, if it's a if it's good, I might not be satisfied. But if Mission Impossible is bad, I can guarantee that I'm going to be dissatisfied. And that's the important component from a leadership perspective of expectancy theories that when you meet people's expectations. You can't guarantee satisfaction, but when you don't, you can always guarantee dissatisfaction. And that is so important because as, as leaders, you know, I, I think everybody out there can probably attest that they've been dissatisfied in their employees at one point or another. And um, and on the flip side of that, we probably, you, everybody can find a time when they've been dissatisfied with their leaders. And so, you know, the key on that is understanding what the expectations are, not just, what, you know, communicating what your expectations of your employees, but also making sure your employees, uh, you know, communicate their expectations of you. And the same thing holds true in a classroom. If you're in a classroom getting, you know, you can give out your expectations of what this class is gonna look like, but you also need to elicit the expectations out of the students about, you know, what it is that they're looking for and stuff out of a class as well. Because that will inform you on some of the things that might keep you away from making, making them dissatisfied because you're just simply not listening to their expectations. And uh, it's such an powerful component. I always tell people, you know, from a leadership perspective, if you ever find yourself frustrated with an employee, you should ask these three questions before you act. You know, going towards some of the pause kind of elements and stuff right here, right? Not letting your amygdala get get uh, hijacked by your, uh, your you know, your, your brain get hijacked by your amygdala and your emotional center. So um, it's it's always asked these three, three, three questions. Did your people know what success looked like? You know, um, did they have the tools, resources, and direction to be successful? Or did they just blow you off? And if they just blew you off from an employee perspective, that's something you got to deal with right there. But most often what ends up happening is people want to be successful, but they don't know what it looks like in our eyes. And they also might not have gotten the tools, resources, direction to be successful, and they'll belong to us. And so it's really important to make sure that before you act on your frustration, that you realize whether or not you were clear on your expectations. And on the flip side, again, it's so important to get the expectations of your employees and stuff on you as well, because that just becomes a critical element of, of making sure that you're meeting their expectations and not setting up dissatisfaction from their end, because dissatisfaction from their end can manifest in what you would perceive as poor performance when really they're just dissatisfied with you as a leader.
0: Wow. Wow. That's profound too. And I, I just want to thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom. This is all amazing. And every single person listening can incorporate this into their life. Do you have any final words? Is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? Is there anything that you want to say to the audience before we sign off?
1: I, you know, all I'll say is that it's, uh, leadership is, is a, is a gift. It's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great, um, responsibility and uh, and you you know you need to be the first person to step off. I mean don't ever ask anybody to do anything that you're unwilling or incapable of doing yourself. you do it first. If you want to change you know an organization, you change yourself. You change the people around you, and pretty soon things will start to move in different directions. And one of the things I'm grateful of being here with you today, Scarlett, is you have made some major changes in the way people think and the way people behave. And uh, and I think uh, and I'm humbled to be here with you today because your movement is. Is making a huge difference out there. It's influencing people through, you know, through some some amazing work and through your amazing story right there. So, uh, you know, you you took the step and uh, and you continue to take the step and and I you know I am I'm grateful to to uh, to be able to support you in any way I can.
0: Uh, Thank you so much. So we're going to follow up this podcast with a link to your website, a link to your book. I encourage everybody to go definitely read the book, explore the website, consider uh, hiring you to come in for leadership because I can tell you after having gone through your leadership course, only I think uh, three hours we shared together, it changed my life. And uh, I've incorporated so much of what you taught me and just know that that is getting out there through me as well, but it's nothing like having you in and doing an assessment and uh, helping, helping people become the best versions of themselves. That's what we're here to do. That's our purpose in life and you help people do that. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your valuable time and your wisdom. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for choosing love. Continue to do that. Spread the message. Take this podcast. Spread it far and wide because the message is so important. We need it now more than ever. And thank you for choosing love. Hey, hey. hey oh.
1: It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up you let it in let the heat